0: Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and it is just me today, and I'm really just here to introduce what you're going to hear. Shambana Con is an annual SF con held in central Illinois. Uh, Shambana is Champaign-Urbana, where the University of Illinois is located, for all you non-Midwesterners out there. During the last years of his life, Gene Wolfe lived in central Illinois, and he was a participant and also guest of honor at the con. And so when he passed away in 2019, the con held a memorial session for him. Listener and friend of the show and, and, and friend of Gene's, Michael Frasca, he was there and he recorded the audio. He also participated in the session. And we have made a dedicated page on our website to preserve this session, but we are also releasing it here. So what follows is the Gene Wolf Memorial Session at Shambana Con 49. This was held on November 30th, 2019. And I want to thank Michael for the work that he did in in recording this and and also engineering this audio as well. And also, I want to thank the con and the session participants for letting us preserve and publish the session. Thank you. So the
1: purpose of this is to remember Gene. And part of the purpose of this is coming about because I tell you, Gene, Gene had the unfortunate chance to die on Easter weekend. And Jane being the penultimate Catholic that he was, would have understood that being a Catholic person and dying on Easter weekend means you're not getting buried in the church, which is just so ironic because he was the most devoted of Catholics. So for him not to have had his funeral in the church was kind of like really, really odd. Um, And people came from all around the world to be there at this funeral. So, she uh, and coming. He will have a eulogy. We will all eulogize him in the best way possible. A total Irish wick. And so there is whiskey over there. There are all types of scotches over there. There are little shot glasses over there. There are stories to be told. So we're kind of going to do this in a Quaker sort of way, which also probably would have been funny to Gene that we're doing this in that sort of way. But as people feel so moved to tell stories about Gene, may they feel free to imbibe or not imbibe. There's water if you want water, because it's unlucky to toast people with water. But if you want to, go right ahead, because Gene didn't believe that shit. (laughs) Uh, But this is a place to tell stories about Gene. If you've got your program book with you, The Yellow Rose of Texas is printed in the book. And at some point, we will be singing The Yellow Rose of Texas. Because whether you do it or not, I mean Gene, you think of him as this fellow from Illinois who lived in Peoria. But the only reason he lived in Peoria was because he promised Rosemary that he would take her home. Gene was from Texas. And <laughs> he had cowboy boots and cowboy hat. He was Texan. And his very favorite song was The Yellow Rose of Texas which was one of the good things about his funeral. At the end of the, of the funeral, they did play The Yellow Rose of Texas. It was an instrumental version, and only a few people kind of understood what that was. But the Yellow Rose of Texas, Virginia was Rosemary, his wife. She was a beautiful blonde woman, and so she was The Yellow Rose of Texas. Uh, but they only knew was in Peoria because he promised to bring her home. And then he kind of got used to being in Peoria, and so he stayed. We and Shin were really very really fortunate to have fallen into Jane Wolfe. It was entirely accidental. The year that Jane came to us, he was pissed off at Windycon. Because Windycon was giving their comps to the flavors of the month. The hot and up-and-coming shooting stars in the science fiction world. And they had no room for this tired old man. They didn't have they wouldn't call for his room. They wouldn't give him space on the program. Jean Freaking Wolf has no space on their program. And this was really upsetting to a good friend of his named Gene Raby. And she says, Well, you know there's a con, just right down the road. And I bet you if I called them, they would love to have you. And sure enough, she called me and she said, Gene Wolf would like to come to your convention. And I said, Yes! <laughs> I would love to have him. <laughs> it would Same be memory, great. Yeah. And when he got here, I mean, he didn't know us for Adam. We knew him. He didn't know us. Uh, but he had all these people who never expected to sit this close to a giant. And it was cool. And we'd get up in the morning and go down to the restaurant, and there'd be Jane sitting at his table. And sooner or later, somebody would walk in, and next thing you know, he'd be having dinner with one, our breakfast with one of our people, Randy made it his purpose to have breakfast with Gene every single year. So when Gene got here, he had a really pleasant time. He had people who really listened to what he had to say. And he paid attention to all of this. So at the the convention, I said, Gene, would you like to come back? And he said, sure. And I said, great, you can be my golden guest for as long as you're willing to come back. And so every year, I said, are you still coming? And he'd say yes. Even the year that he got, well, there was one year he got really, really sick, and he could not come that year. Last year, he wasn't feeling so great either, but he made it. He was determined to come. It it ticked some people off that he was that determined to come, but he was that determined to come, and he came here. People flew from Texas, from the Pacific Northwest, from Canada from Alabama, there was a family that named their child Wolf, who brought the child to sit in front of Gene so he could say he saw Gene Wolf before he died, and the kid is like this little kid, and the parents are like, oh, Gene Wolf, <laughs> <laughs> and the kid's going, can you come now? Because <laughs> the kid didn't understand, but someday he will, because someday he's going to read these books and he's going to understand who he was named
2: after.
1: I'm going to cry. So, just get over rich because I'm going to cry. I love that man. He was like a big, comfy, smiling, twinkling, elfin grandfather to a lot of people. Besides being a giant who wrote really strange stories. Especially in the later years of his life, he wrote some really strange stories. He gave me a book of his the first year that he was here, and it was a spy, mystery, science fiction, thriller. It had everything (laughs) in it, but the writing was still amazing. You know he did those stories in one go, right? He just, (laughs) write through them. He would not start at the mid, and they took the stories, took them where they would and that's where they went he didn't plot out he didn't do those things he just didn't want made up a good story so we have stories i have stories feel free to tell stories if you got them stay up and tell them i'm gonna go get a drink
3: <laughs> At one of the writers one of the accounts here i attended one of his writing panels at the time i was writing a short story and i got
4: stuck I mean, I've been stuck for some time with this, this story. I got right to a point, I knew where I wanted the characters to go. I went, well, I want, how I wanted it to end. I, but I couldn't figure out how to get it. His advice was simply just, just write and uh, just keep, keep at it until you find something. And I got he was right. I did manage to find a way to resolve my story the way I wanted it. And, and Gene's advice helped me. So hearing from a, a
3: published
5: author really does help.
1: I was at one of the workshops that he was attending and there was a guy who kept saying that he wanted to be a writer and Gene's only thing he would say to them was, well then, write. And the guy kept making excuses. Well, you know, I've got this job. Well, write. Mm-hmm. Get up early in the morning and write. Well, I'm not a morning person. Well, then stay up late and write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for Gene, writing was like breathing. That was the thing that you just you just did it. But the lesson that I took from it was if you really want to hear a writer you have right, you have right too. You gotta do something.
3: Even if it's even if it's what you write down
1: is crummy, you can always make it better better later. Make it better. At the point, it's Writing And then you asked him what his favorite story of if he was working with any of all of his stories, if we had a lot. He would tell you the same thing. The one I'm working on now—that's that's my favorite one. That's the one. Yeah, Kelly gave us that answer to that question.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, There's a picture in this slideshow that you can't see, <laughs> which is Gene holding up his palm, and on his palm it says, "Start the next one." Mm-hmm. That's what it says.
4: I'd like to share a, please, a, a brief please. essay sort of thing that I wrote after Gene died. Please. Uh, it's kind of rambling, I'm going to deviate from what I've written here uh, a little bit. Um, I first met Gene at chi 7, the 70th World Science Fiction convention in Chicago, which was my first Worldcon. Uh, he was on a panel called Learning to be Dangerous with Liz Gorinsky, David G. Hartwell, and Connie Willis. He was the last panelist to arrive. I can't remember much of the panel itself, although I do recall in the audience coughing loudly throughout. Afterwards, I nervously approached Gene as he made his exit, and we exchanged brief hello, and so I wouldn't have my first real interaction with him until Windycon 41 in Lombard. Two years later, I don't think he was on any panels or even listed as an official guest, so I spotted him and his daughter Terry in the dealer's room, perusing some silver-headed canes. Hey, um, Brenda. I watched them from a distance sending a climb over whether I should approach or just leave them alone. And one of the dealers, noticing my distress, told me to just go Gene's a Sweetheart, the dealer center. So I went ahead and went up to them clutching a copy of the October of two thousand four issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in my trembling fingers. I had brought it to be signed by another writer, my friend Richard Schwede, and had actually just left a reading of Richard's to hunt out paperbacks in the dealer's room. I introduced myself and asked if Mr. Wolf would be kind enough to sign the magazine for me. Being proudly, Gene said, of course he would. And as I offered him my pen, Terry asked, would you like a picture? Of course, I said, yes, without hesitation. Uh, and Gene linked arms with me. He then suggested we take one of Terry's for the in sacred fairness. And so I did my best to take a decent group selfie. Uh, I didn't remember until later that Gene had lost his wife, Rosemary, less than a year prior. And yet he laughed and quipped, welcoming fans like me with a big, gracious smile. He was indeed a sweetheart. I saw him next only a couple of weeks later at Shambanicon 44 in Champagne, which was actually my first Shambanicon. Uh, he spoke on a panel of S.M. Sterling and Gene Raby about novel writing. I sat near the front and scribbled down notes. I found out that Gene was a regular guest at Shambanicon, and since the convention was both very close and very inexpensive, I decided to become a regular attendee. Of course, then I missed Shambanicon 45. I made it to 46, though, and by, the time I, by that time I'd finished reading the Book of the New Sun in its entirety. Prior to that, I'd only read a smattering of his short stories, but by 2016, I'd been deeply bitten by the wolf. I brought the books for Jane to sign, and was able to catch him almost alone in the con suite. He seemed to remember me from our previous encounters, and we chatted for over an hour about the island of Dr. Moreau and its various film adaptations, famous science fiction fans of by, the origin of my last name, Buzz Boon, and writing in general. I was almost finished with an early draft of my novella Nightbird then, and I briefly summarized the plot to him. That's a good story, Gene said. I contained my euphoric grin and back him until later in the hall, but only just.
2: <laughs>
4: Writer and musician Nathan Carson flew over from Portland, Oregon to interview Gene Acheon in by 147. It was wonderful to witness, and I'm thankful the whole thing was preserved on video, and it's now somewhere on YouTube. Um, it was my first time meeting Nathan in person that we've been friends on Facebook for a couple of years. We had a wonderful time hanging out, talking shop, shooting the breeze. He signed some stuff for me, uh... uh I was able to sneak in another con suite chat with Gene, this one's shorter and a bit more crowded, in which, uh, related, in which I related an update of my progress with Nightbird, which is still was not done yet. When I described it this time as a novella instead of a novel, Gene talked. Why is it a novella, he asked. You should make it a novel. I explained that I had cut an entire character from the original draft, along with an accompanying subplot, which alone had reduced the manuscript's length by more than half. Well, he said, you should just put that character back in and add another one, add a couple more characters, and make it longer so you can sell it as a
2: book. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I remember being immediately worried that i made a huge mistake aiming for a smaller novella market rather than one of the day five. But soon after that, I saw the open call from Unnerving Press for novella like manuscripts, and the rest is history. I sold the story, or sold the novella, and it's uh, published now and doing, doing all right. Um, I'm not upset with the way things turned out, but I do wonder often how they might be different if I followed Gene's advice. Chambernaton mm-hmm. 48 was the last time I saw Gene. I hadn't been planning to attend that year due to some recent changes in my home life, but on short notice, Brenda asked me to co host an interview mm-hmm. with Gene, similar to one Nathan had conducted, and I agreed, because how could I not? <laughs> I began hastily coordinating questions with my co-interviewer Andrew Usam. Uh, Andrew was a longtime die-hard fan of genes like Nathan, while I was still a fairly recent convert and not as well read in his bibliography. The interview went well, though I think I conquered it here and there. That one is also on YouTube. As you can see for yourself. Um, after the interview, I gave Gene an inscribed copy of Nightbird in exchange for one last autograph. <laughs> This time, I was a copy of Peace. Gene made a small show of facetious anger at my having ignored (coughs) the scene. I hope it was (laughs) facetiously, But graciously accepted the book. I have no idea if he read it, but I'm just glad I was able to give him a copy. After chatting a bit longer with Gene and Andrew in the consuite, I quietly excused myself to go home. And then, some five months later, on what will surely go down in history as one of the worst Mondays on record, I read the news online. Gene Wolfe was dead, and Notre Dame was burning. Given Jean's Catholic faith, it struck me as a peculiar pairing of tragedies. Of course, I knew he'd been ill for some time without knowing the details, and many others will have more intimate remembrances of both the man and the body of work he left behind. But I'm just thankful that I not only got to meet Jean, but become a repeat acquaintance of his. I'm thankful for his brilliant work, and even more so for his personal grace and humor. I'm more thankful than ever that I decided to go through with the last, that last interview. And I'd like to let Jean finish this for me. Uh, during Nathan's interview, He shared an anecdote about driving to a formative writers' conference and seeing a multitude of yellow dots on the road, and the rest is quoted verbatim from that interview. As I got nearer, all the yellow dots flew up into the sky. They were were goldfinches, and I don't know what they had been doing with a flock of 20-30 goldfinches on the road, but that's where they had been, and and as I came toward them in the car, they flew up. And I had the feeling, I'm starting on a whole new life. This is a whole new thing that's opening up in front of me. And I was right. It was. You know, I was gonna slowly give up engineering and move into being a pure writer, and that's what happened. And I knew a whole different set of people. I was subject to a different set of rules, and so on and so forth. I still remember the goldfinches, my favorite bird, by the way. They weren't until they flew up in front of me, but once they had done that, I clasped them to my heart.
1: So when Gene was guest at the first Champ I hadn't read anything by Gene at that point, and I didn't really know the man other than knowing this is a really famous guy. And so I reached out to my community and I touched one of the Colson because I knew she knew him. Because she and Jean and um, Juanita's husband, Buck, were really good friends. She wrote me the story of Jean calling them up and saying, I understand that Buck has a, a gun, a handgun, a German handgun. And I had never shot this particular handgun before. Can I come out and shoot that gun? And they said, sure. And Gene lived in Peoria, and they lived in Ohio. But the next thing they knew, Gene was driving down their driveway. And he says, I'd like to shoot that gun if it's okay with you. And they said, sure. So they walked out into one of their farm fields, and he took off his jacket, and he put it on a post, and he stepped out about 20 feet, and he took the gun, and he fired several shots into the jacket. (laughs) And then he walked up, and he picked up the jacket, and he handed back the gun. And he said, thank you very much. And they said, what is all that for? And he said, my editor said he needs a jacket shot. (laughs) (laughs) And I know it's a true story because Juanita took a picture of Gene standing like this, shooting at the
2: jacket.
1: (laughs) That's the kind of humor that this man had. So that was when I read that I knew that everything was going to be wonderful, and then I went out and said, "I have to read the Sand. I need to find out what that kind of sense of humor does in science fiction." And he truly earned it. As now, now you'll see him sitting there at the, the restaurant. This is not the restaurant that Gene usually went to. Every week of his life, he went to the where we had the, the after Perkins Perkins went to Perkins. He went to Perkins every single day, I think, maybe? Except when he wasn't feeling good. And then he went to IHOP because he said the food was bad and he couldn't taste it. (laughs) But he knew all the waitresses who were in that restaurant. Um, He made friends everywhere he went by doing these sorts of things.
7: Uh,
1: If you had a knife anywhere around you, like a table knife, or if they brought you out a steak knife, Gene would proceed to tell you that that was not a knife. This year's a knife. <laughs> and he would pull out this gigantic knife and show you he had this really big knife on him all the time. <laughs> oh, goodness. He was a merry, merry man. Loved his pocket knives. He loved pocket knives. Really good cheers. Cheers, Sancha. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Tell your story.
2: Well, um, we were very, very fortunate to get to M-G in the last few years. It was like, um, we had him over. We lived a half mile from him. So we had him over for pizza and movie nights and, and dinner and um, The thing that I love about the logo yeah. was that it captured him so well because that twinkle in his eye just never, ever went away. Um, we were headed out of town. So, <laughs> and, yeah. We were headed out of town the weekend that he passed, and you know, on our way out of town, we stopped in to see him. You know, thinking we would see him again the next you know afterwards. But um, he was still cracking jokes. He still sharpened as a tack, sharp as a box of tacks. <laughs> Just a wonderful, wonderful man.
1: Neil Gaiman was a really good friend of Gene's, and Neil had already bought the plane ticket to come out and spend. The time with Gene, he'd already paid for the ticket. He was already coming, and then Gene died, and Neil came anyway. Kind of cool. Oh. this was this was the interview. David yeah. <laughs> <It was laughs> hey, and Andrew. There's there's him with Eric Flint. I mean, these three guys between them had like several hundred books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a picture of Rachel. I remember that. I remember that. And that that's like an Amazing collection of greatness. Was that one from last year? Or that was before? last year. Oh, okay. I, was was last like year. A, I was sitting in on that panel. Yep. My very favorite picture, you'll see it later on. You only see the back of Jim. He's sitting in the wheelchair, and at his feet are three adoring fans, uh, all just hanging on every single word he says, and this is this is kind of what happened. You'd, you'd see Gene, and there'd be this circle of people around him listening to everything he had to say, because he was just like that. This is a friend of mine from the SCA, Mike Hobbs, who said, I said, Gene Wolf is going to be my guest at this convention that I run, and he said, Gene Wolf. Gene Wolf. The? Gene Wolf? And I said, yeah? And he was, like, the genial fan of fans. The drooling started <laughs> immediately. And, and he said, I have something to do that day, but I will cancel it.
0: <laughs> and he drove
1: from Indiana on Saturday morning to be here that day to be introduced to Gene mm-hmm. And stand there and, and say, I'm standing in front of the person whose writing has changed my life. And he said, my husband and I read your work all the time, and Gene never missed a trek. Nothing got back this then. And Gene looked up at him from his wheelchair and said, is husband? And he said, yeah, my husband and I, we love your work. And Gene went, oh,
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do I need to start it again? Yeah. Yes, please. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay, you start it again. Wow. Ah. Yeah, yeah, you got to start You don't need to raise your hand, this is not school.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm Mike Frasca, and... Uh, we first met Gene, well, Jessica, you met him at uh, Buccaneer in uh, 1999. Nine, 98. 1998.
2: Really? Yeah, I wasn't there. Joe Altman, stop being in the green room.
3: Yeah. But oh. back in 2013, Jessica got a call from Gay Wolf and then saying, you know, uh, Gene Wolf, he lives in Peoria. Was, really? We didn't know that, you know? And, and, and his wife died and he's kind of by himself. Because you could have had you know, somebody to socialize with. So we started meeting with Gene and um, uh, hanging out with them, and, which was really kind of cool. Uh, Pizza in a Movie, the movies we watched, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the original one back in '31. Island of Lost Souls? Island of Lost Souls, it actually was, yeah. Uh, Charlie Chaplin. we watched, we watched I Married a Witch, if you remember that one. <laughs> into it. So we watched a lot of, a lot of good movies together. Uh, we went to baseball games too. He liked going to baseball games, especially day games. Um, And um, I try to talk occasionally about his books, but he didn't like talking about his books. And if you tried to find out in your book, Did This Mean This? Forget it. You'll never find that out. But sometimes he'll let slip without knowing it where something came from in one of his books. If you remember the original, uh, the... Island of Doctor Death and other stories and other stories. Remember that? Mm. Okay, okay. I'll come back to that in just a second. But uh, Gene was telling me a story about when he was at Texas A and M. He had to take statistics, and the teacher had him do a project about the uh, variation of birth dates. So you were supposed to go around and ask everybody their birth date. You know, okay. and uh, this one guy, and people are coming past all day. What's your birthday? What's your birthday? So finally this one guy comes by and says, Gene, what's your birthday? Gene says, February 31st.
1: <laughs>
3: Writes it down, goes down. A little, and, uh, anyway. So then it hit me. I had just read The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories, and the name of the house was the 31st of February. Uh-oh. Oh, so I said to him, I said, "Gene, you know, I just finished reading that. After he told me that story, I said, gee, you know, I, I just read uh, The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories and, and other stories. And um, the house was the, February, the 31st of February. Is that where it came from? And he thought for a second and says, yeah, I guess so. I said, oh my God, I found out a kid. That's <laughs> the first joke. The second story was I'm a physician and uh, I'm retired now, but I teach medical students how to examine and talk with patients. Still at the medical school. Too bad to me, I'll take your class. Anyway, I, um, uh, gee, I was talking about a book, uh, Gone Girl. Remember Gone Girl? Mm-hmm. and I said, oh yeah, Gene, it was a good book. You know, it had uh, unreliable narrators. You know, like you write. That's all I had to say. He so kind of looked back at me and he said, all narrators are
1: unreliable. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought about that, and I said, that's true. Everybody who tells a story tells a story through their own filters and experiences. And, mm-hmm. and when you're reading a book, you know, you got... Find out where that character is coming from to understand their filter, and maybe even understand a little bit about the character. And we thought, you know, this is like talking to patients. You know, all patients are unreliable narrators; they will lie to you. Okay, no, not lie; they will lie. <laughs> uh, they do, but not. But but it's more than that. It's that they see the world and their problems through their own filter. And I said, you really got to learn to. Uh, you to know, learn about the patient. How do you learn about the patient? You know, social history. You know, where were they born? Where did they grow up? Did they serve in the military? What kind of jobs they have? What's their education? What do they like to do? What are their hobbies? You know, what are their favorite books? And you know, that kind of gives you an idea of the patient. And you learn about them. And then the story they tell you, you can interpret that. So I related this all to some second year students who are just starting to talk to patients. And I said, you no, all narrators are unreliable, and patients are narrators, and we got to understand our patients are taking good social history. So I went through all this, and after the session, the students came up to me and said, Dr. Frasca, have you ever heard of the writer Gene Wolfe? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I yeah. have.
7: He's,
3: he's a big believer in unreliable narrators. I said, I know. <laughs> Stories, but anyway, yeah. and um, a lot of time. One last story, one last nope. story. Okay, tell story. Tell another so stories. story. Yeah, good yeah. stories. okay. I was reading Free Love uh, Live Free. Ever read Free Live Free? Ever, ever read that one? Free Live Free? Okay, there might be a spoiler here, so if you don't want to oh. hear it, oh. leave the room. <laughs> cover your ears or you go, la, 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 la. No. okay <laughs> so i was reading free with free and i and i and i had and i'm looking at the book and the illustrations and the typeface and the headings on each of the chapters were really familiar you know i said like, i know this i know this you know and we went to a baseball game and i'm reading i i read the first couple of chapters and uh, we're at the baseball game, and I said to Gene, I gotta go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, and on my way to the bathroom, it hit me what that typeface was and the story was that a free live free was a Ramana clef based on the Wizard of Oz. I said, damn, I can't get it out. You know? So I came back uh, and I said, Gene, I just figured out free live free. It's a Ramonocleft on the on, on, on the Wizard of Oz, and this and this and this and this and this. he's smiling, (laughs) and uh, I said, "Uh, uh, did I get it right? He said, you did really good. (laughs) I said, but I get it right. He said, could be with that twinkling Uh. (laughs) 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 sound. So anyway, those are my stories. The
1: the Frascas were responsible for bringing Gene here for the last couple of years. Before that, Clark and Margaret would drive out to Peoria and pick him up and bring him here. And very often, these people would take the hotel room next to Gene's just to make sure that everything was okay, everything was cool. It usually was. He was a very independent person. He didn't, he really, the year that he came, the first year, he drove himself. And that was the last year that he really drove. And then after that, I was warned by Gene Raby that it might be a good idea if I found somebody to go get him and bring him back, because he was starting to get lost in Peoria. And that wasn't a good idea. So Clark and Margaret volunteered to go and get him. And he he did not want to be an imposition. He said, "Really, these people will come to my house <laughs> and, and pick me up and to, take to me Did you have there. the opportunity to spend half an hour twice with Gene Wolfe? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I wish you know, unfortunately, I wish I could remember more
6: of that, but I
1: can't relate the story. And I had it was to. Was enjoyable. I had to tell him, this is not an imposition for these people. They want to come get you. Well,
2: they did, want, they did, don't and, bring and, home, and but they will. It's only <laughs> not like we had to drive yeah. up. Uh, well, well you
1: out. would have. It's something you have been Park and Margaret sort of way. Well, there is that. We've also worked before you before. Did, yep. You did a couple of <clears <clears times for me, one.
7: one year, and later, and the process he is always, I mean, so I run a coffee shop in Chicago, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And quite often during the day, they have author readings in there. And the first time Gene had a reading, you know, we usually gave the authors the choice. Some authors like to just, you know, kind of sit up a chair and let a circle go around and some of them would go up on stage to do the reading or whatever. And we always asked the author how they want to do that. And he said, oh, well, do you, do you have a corner where I'll be out of the way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It, it, we're not going to take up much space because I, I don't know if there's going to be anybody
5: keep
7: in mind guys this was probably like six or seven years ago so this was not early i mean this was a handful of years ago and he's still I, I, we don't need much space please, please just put me in the back corner because yeah no, nobody's going to go out of their way for keith <laughs> oh, look <laughs> that, that right was just his, corner. yeah and, and, and <laughs>
1: Sure.
5: Yeah, you know, I remember mm-hmm. the early eighties, you know, in a the university and the book do of the new they, son, the first uh or whatever it was, I forget what it's called now. But we had a reading it and all all my mm-hmm. science fiction friends there at the university and all such and we just said been discuss how wonderful the writing was. Some of the guys were reading it in the bookstore. Because <laughs> <laughs> they they couldn't have the money to get the book. Mm-hmm. So we really have a big admiration for Gene Wolf. And then uh the Boston WorldCon, I forget what year it was, it was 80s, late 80s early. 89 yeah. was
7: 89.
5: Years slipped by. Years slipped by. <laughs> but Robin was on a panel with Gene Wolf. <laughs> <Or> she's upstairs. That's <laughs> who called you. But uh and I wrote written up the introduction for him. And he's reading along, says just that I forget what the error was, you know. Oh my gosh, Gene Wolfe R- is cracking
2: my writing in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> he was always totally full of snark. Yes, this, this is, is great. Was. I, I, I
1: played games on an online server, and one of my opponents just suddenly started to go, Oh, you need to read books by Gene Wolfe out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and so oh, you're going to be there. Tell him I said. <laughs> it was always. A, 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 he was appreciative of hearing it, but there was always a snarky response coming back.
6: Yeah. But, but, uh, but as others have said, the thing I will always remember is the twinkle. I mean,
1: yes. always yes.
6: there. That
3: spark just,
1: right? He was before. a wicked, wicked man.
2: Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so a fellow that I frequently dinner with at conventions
3: um, knew Gene well enough that Gene frequently accepted his invitation and dined with us. So mm-hmm. Even though I don't know Gene uh, from Adam, I've had dinner with him four or five times. <laughs> and one day I was at the convention, and, I, and we but he kind of thing, and we were eating, it was like, wow, we were done, and Gene was going on, it was like, wow, well, I've got a panel. Uh, forget the panel. I don't care what the panel. I'm going to listen to Gene Wolfe. And i about 15 minutes later, it's like, you know, Gene's on that panel. <laughs> 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 I'm
2: like, Gene, to
3: check the program thing. And, and he's like, he comes out of his pocket, and he's looking, he's like, Oh, he <laughs> all, ah, ah. So if we start he starts to get up, and I start to have to help him to get to the panel. About that time, Gene Mikers turned up. He's like, We need Gene Wolf back <laughs> and they haul off to the panel, where if I recall, the other panelists really weren't very nice to awesome.
1: him. And I don't understand this because Gene was never mean to anybody. I never saw him angry. I never envy. God knows he had plenty to be angry about, but he I never saw him angry at anybody unless it was someone who was being rude. Well, he growled yeah. at me a few times for being a dumbass. Dumbass? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a well, guy. you deserved <laughs> so that's okay. Just <laughs> that's not even rude. Oh, yes, he was. <laughs> but it wasn't me. Yeah, well, I got
2: to talk for some reason last year. He was by himself sitting at the table in the con suite, and I got to talk to him for like 15 minutes about... Um, computers and how nice it is just to sit on a porch on a front porch, mm-hmm. socialize and he was just really sweet um but I'm remembering, is it two years ago at the banquet?
1: Oh no last year at the <laughs> banquet, doggone it Gene I could never get him to get up at the podium and the first year he got at the podium and he said something like maybe two or three sentences and he sat down and so our I <laughs> came up to him and I said you know next year I'd like you to say a little bit more and <laughs> it was like pulling teeth to get this hand out. <laughs> year, he, I, I, I came up to him and I said, Gene, I would really like you to say you know, something. something at the something. banquet. And we, we dispensed with the, the podium type thing, because I thought that was a little bit too pretentious for a convention of this size. And we scattered our guests at tables throughout the, the banquet. And wouldn't you know it, Gene is sitting at the table that is the farthest away from the microphone. Mm-hmm. And so everybody else has spoken and it's time for Gene to speak and I, and I introduced Gene. Or maybe the toastmaster. Well, to what, Gene. What, what, what Gene had asked me specifically not to say a word about him. Oh, <laughs> he planned this. So, yeah. I, am, so I, am, I am like, horrified that this is going on, but I'm forced to uh, not say not say anything without telling anybody else why. So he doesn't say anything about Jean and Jean doesn't come up to the podium. And so, in my evening gown and high heels, I hike my dress up and I grab the microphone and I thump, 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 back to the area. I said, "Gene, you promised to say something at the banquet." He picks up the microphone, stands up, and says, "Something!" <laughs>
2: I love that man. <laughs> I love that. Best ghostie. Ever. Ever.
1: ever that was a fantastic
8: that uh, was a lot of years ago and uh, i'm not as Spanish as a lot of people but i got up early because i had a martial arts thing to do I was eating breakfast very early and this gentleman comes over and he said i don't like to eat breakfast alone so do you mind if I sat with you I see you with the convention." And I said, by all means, because everybody knows me, knows me, I, I talk all the time. <laughs> and that began a, a long friendship with Gene. And we'd sat most Saturday and Sundays and talked for an hour and a half, two hours. It was one of the most brilliant times. Uh, I've I've done a lot of things in my life, and I, I've accomplished everything I pretty much want. I've talked to governors, I've talked to state assemblies. Nothing's better than sitting at breakfast with Gene Wolfe. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, we talked and we just talked. We didn't talk about books. We didn't talk about science fiction other than he told me how he met Gaiman and some other things just in a friend-to-friend kind of way. And we talked about his career as an engineer, his editing of magazines. I bet you talked about Rosemary. And we talked about Rosemary and we talked about those things. But uh, I tell you what, uh, very high on my bucket list was coming over here in Sutton and here in Jean talked to me and one year he said one of the most wonderful things I've ever heard I think it was the third year he was here or something he said I wondered if you co- I was wondering whether you were going to come over and eat breakfast with me this year. <laughs> I said, Gene Wolf wondered about me <laughs> happen, and whether I'd be there to eat breakfast with you.
1: And this morning we went down to breakfast
8: I went to breakfast, yes.
1: I I saw you sitting there without jeans. Without
8: jeans. And it was a hard thing, but, uh, you know, it's part of getting older. And uh, he was one of the more brilliant men I've ever met. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure as heck beats Pence.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was in the art. That's a pretty low bar. The one thing he didn't want to talk about was what he did in Korea. He, he, I'd ask him about it. He'd say, no, I don't want to talk about that. But one thing he would tell you was how he made money in Korea. And that was by mm-hmm. challenging people to play chess. Mm-hmm. And he would challenge soldiers to play chess. And he never lost. Well, and that's how he made his pocket change <laughs> when, he, when, he in, when he was in the Army. But he, he didn't want to talk about that. He did want to talk about Rosemary. And it broke his heart that she had Alzheimer's. And at the end of her life, she didn't know who he was. Oh. And, and every time I'd be in a conversation with him, that subject would come up, and he would tell me she doesn't know who I was. There
2: was a quote that I saw from a, an interview, I think, that um, we had talked about Rosemary, that there was a point where she didn't know who he was, but she remembered that she loved him. Yes. Oh, wow. She was
1: never mean to him, she was never aggressive with him, which is one of the symptoms of Alzheimer's, and she was never mean to him. I have
4: good friends of mine who have died of Alzheimer's and is one of the worst because Mm -hmm. these are really intelligent, independent,
6: well-minded people and it
1: takes away what
6: makes them who they are.
1: Yeah, and he loved her so much. You can tell by every picture that she shows up in here that he's looking at her with absolute adoration. (laughs) He adored the fact that he had this gorgeous, long, tall, blonde, beautiful wife Uh, they were very, very happy to Well, is the other person in the picture? The other person in the picture? It's probably Neil Gaiman's that's first wife. This, first wife. Looks like this is Neil, and that's probably Neil's wife. I love this picture of him. That's, that's one of my favorite ones. Now, these pictures came from a collage that his daughter, his daughter put together, and you guys helped put together, of pictures that were at his funeral. And so I went and I asked permission when I went to the the memorial and I said, can I take pictures of your collage? And they said, yes. So I got in there with my camera and I took all these pictures of the collage. And then when the printer refused to print, I sat up at night, zooming in on the collage, cropping a picture, zooming it out, (laughs) planting it in here. There's Rosemary, marvelous blonde woman. So you get to see the pictures that were there. When uh, the funeral, which, for me was disappointing, because there was no eulogy, uh, was over the the satisfying part of the funeral. The The good part of the funeral was running out to the cemetery, because Jean was a vet. At the cemetery, when we drove up, the men in uniform were standing there in their full-dress uniforms. And they did the gun salute. I I didn't count them.
4: 21. Yeah, was it 21? was a group of seven. They did the 21 <laughs> gun
1: salute, and they gave the, the flag to his daughter. And when those guns went off, just hit you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was the good part. And then afterwards, we went to Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all sitting around in Perkins, and then we, they knew he's coming, because he was friendly with all the waiters and the waitresses there. They knew we were coming. And uh, at the end of the day... Somebody, and we don't know who, picked up the tab for every single person who was there. Oh, wow.
2: I don't know who that is. (laughs) That's Mickey Zucker
1: Riker. Oh, okay. And they're Uh, holding each other's books. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That makes sense.
3: Um, We took him up to Icon a couple years ago, and he was scheduled for a reading with Mickey Zucker Riker.
1: Oh, okay. And it turns out she was,
3: she's a big fan girl. Gee,
1: okay. Yeah, there's all the the statues up there. So the touch. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so she read her book, he read his, and then she said uh, uh, that she was a big fan of his. and Could she? Could he accept her her book? I think it was the iRobot. Robot.
1: It was iRobot. Yeah. Robot.
3: yeah. Was yeah. Robot. yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Well, I got to give you mine. Oh, mine. And, let me, and, and, and let me sign. You know, and she signed hers, and he signed his, and, his and she was." For class.
1: There's one picture in here that you probably can't read because I can't get the text clear enough, but they had some of his books at the memorial, and I flipped open the cover, and inside the cover was Gene's dedication of the book to Rosemary, and him thanking her for being so kind and patient with him while he worked on this writing career thing, <laughs> and it was one of the most lovely, loving notes I had ever seen. It was just marvelous. He was a darling, dear, dear man. I miss him terribly.
6: That's
1: a baseball <laughs> game. Baseball game. Yeah. <laughs> so down in our auction, thanks to the Fraskas and to Terry Golding, his daughter, they were going through all of his estate and there were things that they didn't know what to do with. And the Fraska said, Which oh, oh, That picture right
3: there. That's okay. about, that uh, was, uh, uh, I was eating with an icon and he just suddenly, for no reason, picked up his napkin, put it on like that, and said, who is that mask man?"
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep. <Wait a> <laughs> and that's Joe Haldeman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sitting yeah. out there. But thanks yes. to these guys, they told Terry, uh, well, Shane Bandicoff's having an auction. I'm sure they would love to have some things from g <laughs> So in the auction, there is an Alice in Wonder cuckoo clock uh, there is a fanzine from Ukraine. It's Chernobylization number six. <laughs> I don't know what that was all about, but that was in there. Uh, there are his, his soundtrack, the things he listened to when he was working. So there is a box of CDs that are the things he listened to, and there are four gigantic boxes of tapes of folk that he really loved, and music that he listened to, and a lot of stuff that's in those, there are, are largely unobtainium, you know, things that are completely out of print now. So if you want to take a piece of Jean's Listening World home and find some unobtainium, that's there as well. So we, we have that. That's my favorite. There's, that's your that's, <laughs> that's my shot. Those are
2: those
1: people so, Yeah. Sitting at the master's knee, that's the way I refer to this. It's actually the way I captioned the picture, was at the master's knee. That's me. That's me on the couch. Yeah, the back. Yeah, the back. Yeah. I remember that.
6: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm out of frame in the other direction. Yeah. That's yeah. I, I don't have really great demo stories because, well, partly because this is my first Gen but I did, I did meet him one time, which was last year's WendyCon, Con, and I, I didn't know. I didn't know until like. Friday when I was looking at the program that he was going to be there, and I was a a big fan of the book The New Sun, but I read a lot of my books from like the library, so I didn't have a copy. So that that Saturday morning, I went out and scoured the bookshop so I could find a copy of Shadow and Claw, the first the first omnibus, and Mm -hmm. I I got got a copy of that. I went back to the con and I went all around the con. Find him and I went to the info and said, Well he's only at this this panel. So I went to the panel and he was there and he didn't talk a lot on the panel, but then I ran and after the panel and he signed my book and he was very nice and that was the only time I saw him, but it was still pretty important.
1: We have a few minutes left. People would like to charge their glasses, and we will do a toast, and then we will sing the Yellow Rose of Texas, and then we will be done. Okay. So be upstanding as you are willing and able. To an absent friend.
6: Absent friends.
1: And to our next found friend, because the next one will come down the road. the
6: next.
1: Oh, hard to get just one. Right in your hymnal. No. <laughs> <Two> page 8. <laughs> I don't have my hymnal. No. Or share with somebody. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a yellow rose in Texas, Texas. I'm going, going back to see she Nobody knows to miss her, No half as much as me. She cried so when I loved her, It liked to broke my heart. heart. And if I ever find her, will we we never more She's the sweetest, sweetest little rosebud rose that Texas ever knew. Her eyes are bright the as diamonds, they sparkle like the dew. You may talk about, about your pleasantine and sing of Rose Lee, but the yellow rose of Texas, Texas is the only girl for me. Where the Rio Grande is flowing and starry skies are bright, she walks along the river in the quiet summer night. I know that she remembers that we parted long ago. I promise to return and not to leave her so. Oh, now I'm gonna find her, for my heart is full of woe. We'll do the things together
6: that we did so long ago daily, she like be before, and the yellow
1: rose
5: of Texas
8: shall be mine
6: forevermore. the Yeah. Thank you all for coming.
2: Thank you all for coming.